Skills are useful every day. Observation. Be attentive. Notice. Nothing is ordinary. A sense of adventure. Take a chance. Participate. Explore. Resourcefulness. Exercise your ability to deal with an unexpected turn of events. Patience. Resist irritation or restlessness when something takes longer or is more complicated than you thought it would be. Spontaneity. Don't overplan. Don't premeditate. Act on impulse. Wonder. Marvel. Return to the time when you experienced awe. My name is Dan Cassetta, and the voice you just heard is Dushka Zapata, one of the most popular and influential writers in the world. Dushka's brilliant essays, such as the one you just heard, have been viewed over 178 million times on Quora and through her social media, and have been compiled into 11 amazing books. Dushka has an incredible knack for taking complex subjects and perpetual life dilemmas and breaking them down into simple, easy to understand and grasp ideas and concepts. What she offers the world is truly life-changing. This podcast was created to spotlight all the ways that the Cutco Vector Marketing community is changing lives throughout the world. About once per month, we'll reach outside of our community of alumni and current leaders to bring you someone who has changed my life. That's just what you'll get today with the amazing Dushka Zapata. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I could not be more excited today to feature the amazing writer Dushka Zapata. Dushka was born in Mexico, and she has actually lived in multiple countries around the world, through which I know she has developed a great appreciation for and deep understanding of people. Uh, Dushka's day job is in communications and PR. She's worked for several major Silicon Valley companies, but her passion is in writing. She has been among the top writers in the world on Quora for the last few years. She has also had her content viewed over 178 million times, and she's the author of 11 books, one of which is called Feelings Are Fickle and Other Things I Wish Someone Had Told Me. We are going to unpack this book today. Dushka's books are a combination of amazing essays that are all one or two pages that you can really learn a lot from, and they're very emotional and powerful. So we're going to talk about her essays today and some of other really good stuff. Dushka Zapata, thank you so much and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. I hope that I can successfully unpack whatever you ask me. (laughs) We are going to try. It's going to be fun for sure. Well, I want you to start, if you could, by reading the essay on page 23, which Mm -hmm. is called The Other Is Like You. Yes, I would be happy to. I was just telling a friend earlier today that it's really hard for me to talk on a podcast because when you write, you have the luxury of thinking about what you're going to say and organizing your words. And when you talk, you don't. So when I talk, it sounds really sloppy to me because I haven't had the time to edit. So the fact that you're asking me to read is very soothing. Okay, here we go. The other is like you. One of the most painful things is the illusion that we are alone and that no one understands us. Compassion is the antidote. Compassion is an ability to put yourself in another person's shoes. It means you can see things from their perspective. It's a deep form of understanding. Compassion makes it much more difficult to feel indifference and isolation. It makes it harder to feel anger, frustration, animosity. It invites you to realize that another is like you. It lends you a feeling of community instead of one of disassociation. Compassion gets you out of your troubles and your stories in your head to connect you, introduce you to a collective instead of an individual universe. Being compassionate is one of the ways to move through the world, understanding more and suffering less. Dushka, I love the phrase in here that compassion invites you to realize that another is like you. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like compassion has been lacking already in this age of social media. It was lacking before recent times, but it's been only made more difficult throughout this sort of disconnected year of the pandemic and a contentious election and everything else. How does one go about developing their compassion? Well, there's two answers, I think. One is experience. When you experience things, you understand when another is going through something that you've been through. You know, when you experience grief, it's easier to understand another's experience of grief. 
when you've experienced heartbreak or loss, it's easier to understand than another person's experience. But the other thing that I find incredibly helpful and comforting is what I do to my own brain. So let's pretend that you were late to this podcast. You weren't, but let's pretend that you were. So in my brain, I have two choices. One is to say, Dan doesn't respect me. I can't believe he was late. I can't believe that he has no real appreciation for my time and my importance. Does he not know who I am? And we speak to ourselves in a way that riles us up. Mm -hmm. Or I could say, Dan is like me. Dan probably had an experience that distracted him from the time. And haven't I been late? Haven't I frequently been late to things that I really want to be on time to? Could it be that something that has often happened to me happened to him? And then instead of riling myself up, I rile myself down. And so we choose to take our own experience and make it bigger in a way that really hurts. I end up incredibly angry at you. I end up feeling like I don't matter to you, like I'm not important to you. Or I can force myself to put myself in your position, initially feeling like I maybe I'm not representing myself, but ultimately feeling like I understand you better. And I think that we would be doing ourselves a huge favor if we, in our inner workings of our brain, made an effort to put ourselves in the other person's shoes instead of indignantly sort of like grasping onto ours. So brilliant. Is this like a muscle that gets built as you you become aware that you're doing the opposite of what you just said and you realize like, hey, this is just hurting me and it's hurting everyone else. I need to reframe this right now. And gradually it becomes easier and easier for you to do that. You know, I love it because people talk to me about like muscle and discipline. And really what I'm thinking is I just want to suffer less. Like I'm just a wimp and I want this to hurt less. And I think that compassion is one of the sort of the the recipes to like really suffering less because you put yourself in the other person's shoes. And most of the time I'm like, you know what? That person didn't intend to hurt me. That person didn't intend to be rude. That person has had reasons to be late that had nothing to do with me. You know, it wasn't a personal affront. And I feel like that has made my life easier to live. I just want to suffer less. I think everybody listening could agree with that 100%. And it just makes so much sense uh, as a human to operate in a way that causes less suffering for both yourself and for others around you. Yeah. And sometimes you don't know how. And whenever I stumble upon a way that I find that I suffer less, which I think we'll talk through the other examples in the next hour, but that's basically what I write about. I discover something and I'm like, oh my God, this is really helpful in me suffering less. Why didn't anyone tell me? Hence the name of the book, Feelings Are Fickle and Other Things I Wish Someone Had Told Me. And one of the things I wish someone had told me was, don't put yourself in your shoes, put yourself in the other person's shoes. Like, sure, it's generous, but mostly you're going to suffer less. Yeah, exactly. How do you feel travel has impacted your ability to be compassionate? Oh, hugely, right? Because as I mentioned before, this recipe of like what's in my head, a lot of what you feel compassion for has to do with understanding of others. And the more you travel, the more you're able to understand, the more experiences you have, and the more you're able to understand others. You understand where they come from. You understand how their language might influence, you know, how they think. You understand how their upbringing might have had an impact on their life. You understand how many things you actually have in common. What makes us the same is so much more than what makes us different. And you learn that, you see that so evidently when you travel. Here, here. I, I think that's a great thing you just said that what makes us the same is far greater than what far makes greater. us different. Yeah, that's so powerful. I've been powerfully influenced by a guy named Jeff Hoffman who says travel is the fatal enemy of prejudice. And it's I so do- true. That's a great like That's line. very true. Yeah. So true. Awesome. Uh, Dushka, I want to take you now to the first essay in the book. Mm-hmm. So this is page three. Uh, Your essay is called, How Is It Possible That I Exist? How is it possible that I exist? Hundreds and thousands of things, millions of things, had to line up just right. Galaxies and their trajectory, stardust and how it fell, evolution and the way it took place across eons, people encountering other people so that they could get together and make the people who made the people who made the people who made me. My mother and father meeting for the first time in that field of poppies. The moment of my conception, not earlier and not later, not to any other people but these two people, complete with their fire and their dreams. My existence defies all odds. I am a miracle, and so are you. 
That's such a beautiful essay, Dushka. And in my work, I get to influence a lot of young people at a time that's very formative in their careers. And I notice that some of them come in really feeling like they are special. And that has its pros and its cons, but I think it's mostly good. And I also think that there's other people who don't think they're a miracle. They think that they're ordinary or they even think they're less than others. And I'm wondering how you would counsel someone who feels that way. I think that that's a very interesting question because before we started recording, I was telling you that I'm working on my next book that's going to be out in a few, in like two or three weeks. And it's literally about that. That book answers your question. I recently wrote a book, which is, I can see right behind you called uh, Love Yourself and Other Insurgent Acts That Recast Everything. And that book uh, speaks about my own journey and my own discovery of like, you know, why I should love myself and why it's important and why it's the opposite of selfish. And I realized in reading correspondence and people who sent me messages about that book that I wasn't really explaining enough how to love yourself. I was telling you why and, you know, what it was and why it was important, but not necessarily how. And the answer, unfortunately, is is that we don't really have a lot of influence on others. You can tell me a lot of things that you believe, but it's really kind of up to me to let them in. So the influencing is not really in you, it's in me. Being influenced is in the person being influenced. And I think that um, if we follow a series of steps that I hope to outline in this book that have to do with our own sense of discovery and our own sense of like, you know, how to set boundaries and how to treat ourselves as something valuable and precious, like how we, we slowly learn to love ourselves. But I think it's a process and I don't think it's anything anyone else can do for you. I think you have to arrive at the realization that you are a miracle. Interesting insight that uh, it's a process that you arrive at. It's not like I can infuse somebody with this belief in themselves that they are a miracle, but it's, it's just something that person has to come to terms with on their own. Exactly. And I think you can say it to them, you know, 1700 times and it'll go over their heads or like, you know, zing past their ears. And then one day it hits them and they hear you and you realize that it really had very little to do with you and everything to do with them being receptive to it. Yeah. As you look back on your own life, when do you feel like that realization occurred for you? I've been incredibly fortunate because my parents, I just had incredible parents. I have been told literally from birth that I was a miracle and it never occurred to me that it wasn't true. I just never questioned it. You know, parents, I don't know what everyone else's experience is, but to me, what my parents told me was truth. And it didn't occur to me to question it until like a couple of weeks ago. So there were a few things that maybe were not super consistent that I started questioning, but that didn't happen until later. And by then it was too late. I had already built myself around what they told me. I'm full of insecurities, just like everyone else. And I feel like that happened a little bit later. You know, that school did that to me or, you know, peers that did that to me or like boyfriends did that to me. And I think that you sort of like find your way back to the fact that you're worthy and that you are enough. But I think that every time I lose that, it's quite an effort to find it again. And no one can find it for me. No one else can help you with your boundaries and your self-love, but you. That's powerful, powerful to consider. I think that the extension of loving yourself and believing in yourself is the Uh, is developing self-confidence and becoming a self-confident person. You have a great essay in this book on page 24, which is called Self-Confident, and you describe some of the different elements of what that means. Could you read that one to us, please? Absolutely. Self-confident. A self-confident person can distinguish reality from her insecurity. For example, I don't need to get everything perfect. I don't need to compare myself to others. I know that when I feel nobody understands me, I have to work first on understanding myself. I feel gossip and putting others down is a waste of time and cannot be bothered with it. A confident person knows who she is and what she wants. This is because the need for approval does not override her own voice. A confident person is transparent. She expresses what she thinks and what she likes. She's not afraid of not being liked for who she is, and so she has nothing to hide. A confident person craves time alone. She does not need to be constantly distracted and feels like being alone equals being in the best company. A confident person treats herself well. She is her own best friend. Her inner narrative is kind. She takes care of herself. She eats well, goes to the doctor, does things she enjoys as a gift to herself. She does healthy things. Goodbye, toxic relationships, even if I still love you. Goodbye, job where I'm not appreciated. I deserve better, and I'm going to go find it. A confident person recognizes her own efforts. 
Even if no one knows the effort she just went through, she knows and she feels proud of herself. The book about self-love is similar to this. Like these are the things that make for a confident person. And the book is, this is how you get there, but it's very similar, like broken down one thing at a time. So you can contemplate what that means to you. Just by way of example, I've learned that people have just like very different inner narratives. And some of them are like really critical. I don't have a critical inner narrative, but I have a demanding one. So my inner narrative is you could have done that better. That wasn't your best. You didn't do that well enough, uh, which is really exhausting. But other people are, their inner narrative is more like, you know, you suck, you'll, you'll never be good enough, things like that. And I think checking our inner narrative to course correct what we hear all the time, which is our own voice, is one important step. And as you can see, if I need to course correct my inner narrative, you can't do that for me. I have to do that for myself. Right. Exactly. I like what you said in the essay about a confident person. She treats herself well. She is her own best friend. Her inner narrative is kind. This really applies directly to what you just are referencing right there. And, and you know, we, we treat ourselves well through our inner narrative. We also treat ourselves well through our habits. That point is like so interesting to me because treating myself well actually means different things at different times. I'm going to give you a few examples. Sure. Um, I have to get up to go for a run. If I didn't sleep well, what is treating myself well? Getting up to go for a run or getting more sleep? Which is it? Basically, you can't answer that, right? I have to figure that out. And it's really hard. I'm going to relax and do a, a yoga class or I'm going to go take a bath. I haven't been sleeping well, which is better for me. I'm exhausted and stressed and anxious. I'm going to spend time alone or I'm going to get a drink with a friend, which is better. And the fact is that different things are better for us at different times. There is no formulaic answer. We have to figure it out. What is it that I need? What is it that's best for me? And this is another reason why I'm so adamant that no one can do it for us because my mother who adores me can tell me, you need to get some rest. And I can say, I actually really need to go for a run for whatever reason, because I didn't run yesterday because I'm anxious. I need to get it out of my system. But the simple question to what is it that's best for me is actually really difficult to answer. And it really requires that I lower the volume on everyone else's voice and so that I can hear mine. And it is incredibly tricky. And I think that we oversimplify it. Hmm. You said it, it's important for me to lower the volume on everybody else's voice so that I can hear mine. Yeah, because other people think that they know what's best for us, right? Our parents who love us think they know what's best for us. Our friends who want to give us really great advice think they know what's best for us. And the fact is they don't know what's best for us. We barely know what's best for us, but we know. You know, I, I think a lot about the times that my mom was like, you know, really liking a guy I was dating or thinking, my mom is an artist. She's a sculptor. And she just wasn't really crazy about the fact that I got a job and was going to be in an office nine to five. She didn't think that that was going to be good for how my brain works. And I loved it. So even people who have our best interests at heart are not us. They can't tell us what's best. We need to learn how to listen to our own inner voice. And we can't do it if it's ringing in our ear all the time. That's why I'm such a huge advocate of spending time alone. Mm. And does that alone, that alone time illuminates that inner voice for you? It does. I don't feel like it's, I'm going to spend time alone so I can think. It's just something that's sort of like, I'm, I'm alone and I'm like quiet and I'm writing or I'm like sitting at my couch and drinking tea or I'm listening to music. And I, my brain tends to work things out on her own. An, a, a, an example, another example of that, a corollary of that is the incredible magic of let me sleep on that. Let me just sleep on that. You sent me a few questions and a few ideas of what you wanted me to read for this podcast. And I saw it and it was a lot of information and a lot of different pages. And I was like, is this too much? And I was like, I think I'm going to sleep on it. And like, like I read all of it and then I slept on it. And then I looked at it again the next day. And I feel like just giving my brain that time to sort of like percolate on information really helps me sort of like wake up with clarity and say, yeah, I think that that's a good amount of stuff to ask me questions on, or it's a good uh, course so that the interview has, you know, continuity or whatever, but it, I have to sort of take a step back and think for myself. Yeah. I feel like everybody should have 
planned time in their weekly uh, calendar that is just time to be alone and to be in thought and to just be looking at your calendar, looking at your list of things to do and spending time in introspection. And I, I even think writing is a part of this, right? Like the writing that you do, some of the writing that I know I do from time to time, journaling, things like that, I think is also a part of this to just, just to decompress from all of what's going on in the real world and, and be learning from each week that we go through, learning from each day that we go through versus just, you know, getting through another week. Um, I feel like that's important. I think so too. Um, it's actually one of, I write about being alone and spending time alone so much. It's, it's in every one of my books and certainly in the book of how to love yourself. But I think we really suffer from noise, the noise that is other people's opinions in our ear all the time. And, you know, you said I, you know, because of my position, I influence a lot of people. And I, I think that that's really important. And we, owe so much to our mentors and the people that influence us, but also people that influence us need to give us the space for us to influence ourselves. And I think that that is also incredibly undervalued. I think people don't know how to be alone and it's, it's just practice. It's just, just sitting there for a while and like not, I feel very easily overstimulated by things I need to read and do and be productive and, you know, my writing. And so sometimes just sitting around and not doing very much or even going on a walk alone, just like not being with other people. I find it invaluable. I need a lot of time alone, a lot. Yeah. Uh, I feel the same way also. I think that uh, that's a really important thing. You mentioned a little earlier that, you know, you have insecurities as we all do. I feel like the other side of the spectrum from self-confidence is Mm -hmm. self-consciousness. You have a, a great short essay on page 53, but I would love for you to read. It's called too busy. Yes. 53, you said, right? Yep. Too busy. When I first began taking yoga classes, I was mortified about all the things I couldn't do. What if people thought I was incompetent, inflexible, out of shape? I noticed in the throes of my stress that I spent a great deal of energy worrying about how humiliated I could feel, but no energy at all looking at others or thinking less of them because of what they could or couldn't do. Be who you are. Do what you can. Follow what interests you. When you walk into any room and worry what others might think of you, let me assure you that they're way too busy worrying about what others might think of them. Yeah, I just love that insight. Yeah. Um, I, I first learned a concept similar to that when I took a class called the Landmark Forum. And it just it was really an interesting insight to ponder. It's like all of the time I spend thinking about worrying about like, what does this person think of me? Am I saying the right thing? Am I doing the right things here? Do I look okay? Right. Everybody else is just thinking the same things. About themselves. Absolutely. Right. And it's that, it's that person, it's that person that's secure and confident in that realization that I think, you know, ends up feeling the happiest and making the best impression on people anyway. Absolutely. But also, even if they were thinking about us and talking about this, which they're not, but even if they were, they immediately go on to the next thing. So everyone judges you, but nobody really cares. The, I don't, I'm not going to worry about what others think. And instead I'm going to worry what I, about what I want for myself is a really good way to spend your time because what other people say, I wish I could tell you, I don't care what other people say. I don't think that's true, but I, I don't let it have an impact over the decisions that I make anymore because I just have come to the conclusion that it doesn't matter and that I don't factor enough in their minds for me to be able to put weight on what they think. Yep, exactly. Exactly. As I was listening to you describe this, uh, for whatever reason, our friend Christopher Lockhead came into my mind and I just thought of him as a guy that just is who he is, is sort of unapologetically authentic. Yes. And, uh, you know, everything he does he's, he's and, uh, he's great. Yeah. Yeah. He's great. Yeah. Um, I think, and I think, I also think he, he came, he arrived at that very similarly to the way that we were describing. Like he basically was like, I have to be who I am. I don't have the energy. It's not sustainable to try to be somebody else. So at one point you are tired of constantly trying to be what others want you to be. It is, it is not our job to try to live up to others' expectations of us. It's impossible to. Definitely. Definitely. Wow. That, that's a powerful insight. I want to shift away from your essays momentarily here. At the very start of the book, uh, you have a quote from Joan Rivers. It says, uh, listen, I wish I could tell you it gets better. 
but it doesn't get better. You get better. I, I love that quote. It's so true. It's so simple and so true. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you, Dushka, how are you better today than you were one year ago or five years ago? I suffer less. I suffer less and I'm, I'm going to tell you why. I think that this main reason I suffer less is because I don't put myself at the center of everything. So like if I walk into the office, I used to walk into the office. Now I walk into on a, on a Zoom call, right? But if I see a coworker and the coworker is like irritated, I used to be like, oh my God, what did I do? What did I do to irritate him? And then I realized that his irritation has nothing to do with me, right? Mm. Or a boyfriend who says, I'm going to spend some time with my friends. And I'm like, oh my God, this clearly means he doesn't want to be with me, right? And then the friend who is crying and you think you did something to upset her. And as time goes by, you realize that you are not the center of the world, that taking things personally puts you at the center of everything and makes you suffer more. And I think that as I've grown up, I've realized that I'm not the center of the world. And that is very freeing. That was really awesome. Just the idea that, uh, you know, putting yourself at the center of everything make, you know, you take everything much more personally when, when you do that. It's exhausting. Um, It's exhausting. And and I, I I have two little kids and I'm trying to get my little kids to understand, like everything doesn't revolve around you and what you want. Like a lot of times they're like, I want this. And I'm like, well, I I got bad news for you. What you want doesn't matter right now. Right. A lot of times it's what other people want is what you have to conform to, you know, and it's not always about you. Yeah. And and that's like a little kid thing because they it's, I, th- I like to think it's not that we're selfish. It's that we are the lens through which we see the world. So of course we see the world through our own eyes. That's how we perceive. But the more you exercise, wait a second. Uh, the, the classic one is, oh my God, my boyfriend hasn't texted me back. Clearly he doesn't love me anymore. And I'm like, or he's busy. Maybe, like maybe it has nothing to do with you. And I think that that has had a drastic impact on me suffering less. And that is how I've gotten better. Yeah. Wow. That's a great one. Have you read the four agreements? I love the four agreements. I, I love, love the four agreements. Uh, you too. know that so the author is from Mexico, right? As I do. Of, of course. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's one of my favorite books. Whenever someone asks me, what book should I read? It's the one that I recommend first, only because of its direct relationship with the impact that it can have on your life. Yes. But one um, of the agreements is don't take things personally. It, but one of the four agreements is don't take things personally. Exactly. And and that one singular agreement spun off so many valuable lessons for me. I mean, from the things we've talked about here so far today to uh, how I receive feedback from other people versus like making it feel like, oh, it's an attack on me to, oh, it's it's an awareness. It's like they're pointing out something that I didn't see that I'm glad I see now, right? Yeah. And also um, about giving feedback. Would you giving feedback is actually an effort. It's much easier to say nothing. So it's safe oh, to yeah. that the person who's giving you feedback actually cares. You're they're putting in the time to do something difficult. And that in and of itself is a huge compliment. That's such a great insight right there. It's like yeah. the the it's a compliment when somebody is willing to offer you an insight, an it's idea, so an observation. Right. And, and we don't always have to agree with the feedback we get. I try to teach the people that work with me that we don't always have to agree with the feedback we get. But if you just respond with, hey, thank you for sharing that when yeah. you don't agree and yeah. you leave it at that, it keeps the doors open to get more feedback. And eventually you might receive a bit of feedback that's literally life changing. Exactly. I'm going to I'm going to tell you sort of like a related thing. to. Th- so basically, I'm going to call this piece of the conversation. Don't take things personally. Right. I'm going to tell you something kind of similar. So let's say that uh, the, the classic example is I text someone that I like and he doesn't text me back, right? So I think I, he's not interested in me. He, clearly, he doesn't love me, right? So there's a fact. He hasn't texted me back. Everything else is a story. Right. Say that you're late to the podcast, which I keep using as an example, and it's kind of unfair because you weren't, but it's just an immediate, easy example. And I go, I don't care. He doesn't care about me, right? And it's like, you were late. But me saying you don't care about me is just a story. So learning how to make a distinction between what is fact and what is story is critical because sometimes the suffering is in the thing, but mostly the suffering is in the story. Mm. So most of what makes us suffer does not exist. It's a fabrication. 
Hmm. And that, I find that incredibly powerful and incredibly, it has helped me a lot where I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Am I making this up? Is this like only in my head? Like it's possible. It's possible. But is it actual truth or is it a story? And most of what makes me suffer is just a story. So awesome to just to, to ponder that. It, it, it's so true. It's just, we all have things that happen to us. And it's amazing how two different people could get, have the exact same experience. And one of them interprets it in the most negative of ways. And the other one uses it as fuel and inspiration and motivation and something positive. And, um, yeah. you know, we all have that, that ability to choose the meaning for anything that happens in our lives and learning to choose meanings that are constructive and helpful uh, yeah, just or, makes so much sense. Or even forget about assigning meaning to things. Like it's, that would be great, but it's not even necessary. It, the only thing you have to do is, is that a fact or is that a story? Is, is it actually true? Like he didn't text you is true. He doesn't, he doesn't care about you because he didn't text is a story. It, could it be true? Sure. But it could also be that he was just busy this afternoon. Like make a distinction between fact and story. Because if it's a story, you're, you're, it's not necessarily true and it's making you suffer. So it's less about, I have to interpret this in a way that is positive and more, just make a distinction. Are you making that up or is it act, an actual fact? And I think that we spend our lives spinning out on things that are not actually happening. Mm. Wow. I would encourage anybody listening to think about how that exact point right there applies to you. Uh, what are, what wow. is a time recently where you've just done exactly what you just said there, Dushka, where somebody has taken something that happened and they've spun off this story about it that isn't necessarily true, probably isn't true, and thus, you know, they're suffering unnecessarily because yeah. of it. I'll tell you something else that is even easier. It's very difficult to recognize stories in ourselves. It, it becomes easier with time because you get practice. But at first, it's really hard because basically what I'm asking you to do is disbelief your own brain. And your brain doesn't like doing that. Your brain wants you to think that it's right, right? But what if you make it a point to talk to a friend and say, okay, some things are facts and some things are stories. Here's how it works. So when you talk to your friend, detect in your friend, that is not a fact. That's a story. And your friend is like, oh my God, that is a story. And then you do it for each other. So you agree to do it for each other. You're not in another person's face when they didn't invite you. But if you agree, it really helps to have a story buddy. Mm, cool concept. A story buddy. Yeah. I appreciate that. Uh, Dushka, I think that really ties well into what I wanted to ask you about next. I want to get back to the essays here. And on page 61, you have an essay called How to Change Anything. Okay. I think, I, yes. Sometimes when you tell me the name of the essay, I'm like, oh God, what did I write? Because I don't, yeah, I, I trust that I knew what I was doing when I wrote it. Okay. They're all good, Dushka. They're all good. Okay. How to change anything. To tell you how to change anything, I'm going to give you an answer that you will find massively unsatisfactory. I know this because when I first discovered it, I found it massively unsatisfactory, except that it has changed everything. The answer is be aware. Aware like this. Wow. I'm doing it again. I feel like this is someone else's fault. You don't judge it. It's not good or bad. You just see. Once you become aware of something and identify it as damaging, your body and your brain will begin to rearrange things. You don't need to understand how. That's it. Awareness is the catalyst for everything. So that does tie well to what I was saying before, where you go, oh my God, that's a story. I'm doing yep. it again. Once yep. you start catching it, your brain re reorganizes itself and you start doing it less or you start being more aware than you're doing it. And you start catching it in other people all the time. You're like, oh my God, we're going crazy over something that isn't actually happening. And then you decide what is actually happening. So you start putting your energy in the place where it belongs. Yeah. And this seems like it's something that could be helpful also for people who feel like they have a hard time controlling their emotions, right? And they get angry very easily or or anything like that, right? There, You can feel the feeling in your body welling up when anger is coming in, and you can, at that point, develop this awareness that, hey, oh, here it is. I'm here doing it, it again. Exactly. What's happening right now? Yeah, why, exactly. you know, why am I feeling this way? Awareness is the beginning of all change. So when someone says, how? How can I change? I'm like, just look at it. That's it. That's all you have to do. I find that incredible. The fact that just by noticing something, you can start... Because obviously, you can't change what you don't see. Exactly. These concepts that you share, Dushka, are 
literally life-changing concepts and every one of your book every one of your book has dozens and dozens of them one after another after another it is uh i'm transfixed a lot of times when i'm reading your work i mean it really is awesome thank you i Honestly, I come across something like this and I'm like, I don't understand why no one told me this. Why, why, why did I have to discover this on my own? It was so hard. So I try to offer it to other people. Hopefully I make their lives easier. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to tell you something super quickly. This book is like, is not my latest book. This book is the second to last, but I want to tell you the adventure of the last book that I wrote called, it's about boundaries and it's called how to draw your boundaries and why no one else can save you. And the reason I'm bringing it up is because it was exactly that. I was like, why didn't anybody tell me about boundaries? I don't understand. And so a boundary is we have been raised to believe that when we love another person, we say yes to everything. So like, do you like pizza? Yes. Do you want pizza for dinner? Yes. Do you like everything is yes. And if you don't establish your boundaries, you become very resentful because Resentment is a sign that you have compromised yourself and haven't stood up for yourself. Mm. And boundaries are are very easy. Saying no is a boundary, but they're also very complicated because you feel a form of betrayal when you say no, or you feel that you're not being a good husband or a good daughter or a good girlfriend or whatever when you say no. And I have been pretty fascinated by the subject of boundaries because I find them so hard and I find them so indispensable. They are literally the key to every healthy relationship. So then the pandemic hit. And everything I knew about boundaries, which had shifted because I had friends that I loved that I saw every weekend that now I needed to say, I can't see you. I think it's dangerous. And everyone takes less or more seriously, you know, wear a mask or don't wear a mask or don't see people or don't go to parties. And I, from the very beginning, recognized this pandemic as something quite serious that I didn't want to risk. And so it shifted my boundary setting and it shifted who I said no to and when and why. And I was like, if I'm struggling with boundaries, I bet you other people are struggling with boundaries too. And I started taking notes of all of the things that made it difficult for me to establish boundaries. And I wrote a book about it and that's the latest book. But it's, it's like I took other things I wish someone had told me and I focused just on the subject of boundaries and wrote an entire book about it. Cool. That, that is awesome. We're definitely, by the way, going to put uh, a link in our show notes to make sure everybody can see all of your books and oh, yeah, all great. the things they can select from. So including yeah. the new one coming out in a few weeks. What's the title of the new one that's going to be coming out? Yeah. So the new one is, I explained that Love Yourself, the one behind you is like Love Yourself and Other Insurgent Acts that will recast everything. This is just how to love yourself. And it's a workbook. So I basically say one essay and then I ask questions. So for example, the beginning might be, the beginning is actually how do you take care of yourself? And so you might say, you know, eat better or, you know, get enough sleep and get up and go to the gym. And I'm like, really? Like, what if you didn't sleep well? Is it getting up? So stop and think, what is doing the right thing for you? What does that mean? And I shed light on the fact that you have to come to your own conclusions about these things, which is where our initial conversation, like what we were talking about 20 minutes ago or so. So the workbook, it's a workbook that you fill out with your own answers. Mm. And cool. it's called its called How to Love Yourself, a workbook. So you cool. basically get it and you get it with a notebook. So it's intended to be almost a list of questions with a few essays as a guide, but it's really about you writing your own book about how to love yourself. And it's called How to Love Yourself, a workbook. Awesome. That sounds great. I look forward to that one. As you were describing the boundaries and you talked about how sometimes a person might feel when they are saying no mm-hmm. or putting up a boundary mm-hmm. um, or expressing a boundary, a thought that I had is that it's so helpful when you're dealing with somebody who doesn't take things personally because they can receive your no as positive feedback. They're learning about you versus receiving your no as a negative form of rejection. Absolutely. So not taking things personally allows you to respect another person's boundaries. If you together are doing work with your significant other and you're together identifying your stories, you're you're together saying that's not a fact, that's a story. You're together saying, let's not take that personally. This has nothing to do with us. Then when you set boundaries, respecting the other person's boundaries is a lot easier. But Dan, sometimes boundaries feel really personal. I'm going to give you a classic example. Yes, I want to have sex. No, I don't want to have sex. It's my body. 
I get to decide when to have sex. But if I say no to my significant other to sex, he's like, why don't you want me anymore? And I think that's a pretty natural conclusion. Like, you know, it's very difficult to understand that if another person doesn't want to have sex with me, it has nothing to do with me. But what about when I'm tired, when I just had a gigantic dinner, when I just want to go to sleep, when I really would rather read? I know that it has nothing to do with my desire for the other person. I'm just not into it at that moment. And that is a really good example of a boundary and how your boundary might hurt someone else. It's my body. That means I get to decide what to do with it. I can say yes or no, and they're both correct because my body belongs to me. But my boundary has an impact over the other person and the other person needs to respect my boundary. But I also, I also recognize that my boundary can be painful to another person. And I can also feel bad, like a bad girlfriend or a bad wife. If I'm like, I don't really feel like having sex. It's hard. It's really, really hard. And it helps a lot when you're working with the other person. So the other person doesn't take it personally. Mm. Insightful. It also seems like this, this sort of mindset facilitates a lot more open communication between people. Exactly. All of this is much better if you're working with another person. Mm -hmm. Cool. I like it. In one of your essays called Life Lessons I Learned the Hard Way, you write this, discipline, far from punishing, is the highest, truest manifestation of self-love. Yes. So I'm, pu- I'm, take- I'm grabbing my phone and pulling up an essay that I wrote about discipline in anticipation of this question, because I am a huge proponent of discipline. Hold on. I'm- Here it is. Okay. Cool. There's two things. There's two manifestations of self-love, in my opinion. One is a boundary. I love myself enough to stand up for myself and say no to you, even if you are very important to me. So I have a right to say... I love you and I don't want to have sex. And that's a boundary. And that is a manifestation. So boundaries are how we express our love for ourselves. It is incredibly necessary. The other is discipline. So I'm going to read you this very short essay on discipline. So to me, discipline is freedom and everything that you just read. So this is what I wrote about it. A lack of discipline is you scattered, dispersed, disorganized, and prey to all the things that contribute to nothing ever getting done procrastination, laziness, indecision, and an absence of drive. Why don't I feel motivated? Where can I find that hunger? How do I accomplish what I dream of doing? Why is everything so difficult? I want that, but it's unattainable. I want it, but it's impossible. Discipline is you, focused, set free from all the things inside you that hold you back. Action begets motivation. With discipline, a life of leaving everything for tomorrow, a life of frustrating sporadic effort becomes structured, stabled, directed, and inspired. Discipline means you turn down instant ratification in favor of something more significant that you get later. It's how you decide to follow through and how you get to an objective, one that often seemed like it couldn't be done. Discipline teaches you to persevere, to endure, to not give up, and to resist temptation. It teaches you about self-control. Discipline is both a mark and a way to develop character. It's with discipline that you follow through and what you say you're going to do. It's how you prove to yourself that you can do something. And as such, discipline is the key to develop confidence and self-esteem. If you ever wonder how to be successful, how it is that people bridge what they are now to who they want to be, the answer is discipline. Mm, The bridge from where you are now to where you want to be Mm -hmm. is discipline. That's so good. Where is that essay found, Dushka? I don't remember which book it is. I think possibly in Love Yourself in another insurgent acts that will recast everything Uh, or maybe in someone destroyed my rocket ship which is about work it might be in that one i was going to say something else about discipline but it escaped me if i remember i will let you know yeah i I remember if you said to me dushka you will one day write 11 books i would have said absolutely not but if you say you will write every day for an hour i would say absolutely i can totally do that And that's discipline. You get up, you write every day for an hour, and before you know it, you've got 11 books. And that's how you do it. It's what you do that adds up to every day. And Mm. that, if you were to say, what is the biggest secret of life that you have uncovered, the biggest insight, it is look at what you're doing every day because it adds up, whether it's good or bad. The secret to writing a book, running a marathon, becoming an astronaut, being an Olympic gymnast that's a champion, the secret to all of those things is discipline every day. So powerful. Mm -hmm. That is uh, one of the most profound insights anybody can take home about being able to have everything you want 
in your life, that uh, it, it all comes down to the actions you're taking today, tomorrow, and, and ongoing yeah, uh, but that lead not, you to where you want. But it's not, let me go full blast 10 hours a day, every day. That's not what it is. It is, what are you going to do for an hour a day, 10 minutes a day, but every day? And how do you write 11 books? My answer is legitimately, I write an hour a day. I actually write a little bit more, but you get the picture, like every yeah. day. Every day I get up early and I write rain, shine, tired, not tired every day. Yeah. At the end of the year, I've got two books and that's just easy because I'm not thinking book. I'm thinking an hour a day. Yeah. So cool. Now there's another lesson that you share, Dushka, which is, I've seen this a number of times in your writing and it is the lesson that the meaning of life is connection. You say, identify people who inspire you and build you up and keep them near you. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering who inspires you the most, Dushka? I know that this is going to sound like a trite answer, but then everybody, people are so darn interesting. People are amazing and they all do different things and they all have different passions. If you assume that the people worth being inspired over are few, you miss on the fact that everyone has a story. I wrote something. I'm going to read you something like hot off the presses, but I wrote something. Let me just see if I can find it quickly because I wrote it like four or five days ago. And it's about the, somebody asked me on Quora, what is it about other people that I found fascinating? And I'm going to see if I can find it. Here it is. Okay. The question is, what is it about people that you find so fascinating? Because as you said now, I write about this a lot. And this is my answer. I hand him the chocolate bar and he sits down to unwrap it. He takes care not to tear the gold foil it comes in, gently unfolds, then peels back the edges. He pulls out the chocolate and breaks a row, giving it to me. I put it in my mouth and let it melt before engaging my teeth. It's excellent chocolate. I love this gold foil, he is saying. He turns it over in his fingers and lays the sheet down on the kitchen counter. He's completely absorbed, runs his nail over every millimeter. He is detailed and systematic and obsessive and holds up a perfect gold rectangle. Dushka, doesn't this strike you as incredibly valuable? Before his arrival, there would have been no ceremony. I would have torn open that chocolate bar, chewed on it while doing other things. I would have never known about the existence of this prized, heavy-for-its-size glinting lamina, It would have ended up crumpled up and thrown in the trash, not forgotten, undiscovered. This is what fascinates me about other people. Hmm. (laughs) Something so simple. Yeah. Right. As the, uh, the wrapper on the chocolate bar. And I just love this theme that every person, it, it really ties back to what we talked about before, that every person is a miracle. Every person is special. And I do feel like anybody that goes through their days looking for the value in others and looking for what's great about others, you train yourself to be a good finder. You train yourself to feel better about the world, about people, about yourself. It's just a great mindset to have. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was awesome. I want to have you read one of your one of what I think is one of the most powerful ones, which uh, essays, which ties into the title of the book. It's page thirty-seven. Your essay on page thirty-seven is called "If Feelings Are Fickle, Why Act on Them." Mm-hmm. I remember who asked me this actually. Okay, if feelings are fickle, why act on them? Um, before I read you this, I want to explain what I mean by feelings are fickle. Uh, sure. It's really valuable. When when I'm sad. I'm convinced that I'm going to be sad forever. When I'm hungry, I feel like I'm going to be hungry forever. When I'm cold, I feel there is no way that I will ever get warm. Feelings are fickle is so powerful because when you feel something that you don't want to feel, you actually believe that it's never going to be any different. Mm -hmm. And what I want to say to anyone who is struggling, who's depressed, anyone who's like suffering, who's going through a difficult time, is that, hold on, feelings are fickle. They change. They also change when they're good, mind you, but they, they're fickle and they are disguised as permanent. Mm. Okay, if feelings are fickle, why act on them? Many, many feelings come and go. They're a flash, lightning, brush fire, forest fire, a cleanse, nothing. Many feelings come and direct your life. They're a guiding light, a lighthouse, a bright shooting star, everything. You can tell the difference because aside from feelings, you have thoughts, and aside from thoughts, you have goals. You come with other things too, ethics, principles, intentions, your decisions, your actions, a sense of right and wrong. 
Feel a feeling. Think a thought. Give each their just fair space. Let them take you for a spin. You might as well, since they will whether you want them to or not. But recognize that just because you feel doesn't mean you have to act on it. What do you want? Where will following this feeling take you? Does that sound like somewhere you want to go? Does that sound like the person you want to be? You are not your feelings. You are the person who feels them. You are not your thoughts. You are the person who thinks them. What you are is the person who gets to decide. Wow. That one is just so powerful, Dushka. You are not your feelings. You are the person who feels them. You are not your thoughts. You are the person who thinks them. What you are is the person who gets to decide. And the whole idea of recognizing, right, where is this feeling taking me? Is this taking me somewhere I want to go? Is it not? Right? Developing that awareness that we've talked about before. Exactly. Catch, catching yourself in those times. Is this a story? Is this taking things personally? Is this real? All of those things. Yeah. And it's so hard, Dan, because what I'm asking is that you doubt yourself. And it's super tricky. Your brain doesn't like that. Your brain is not going to let you do that. But with practice, it comes and you start making a distinction between you and the thinker of your thoughts. How did you learn to separate you know, your feelings and your thoughts from your actions? Well, first I read about it. Um, it's like a Buddhist principle. And I think that having someone else tell you, you are not your thoughts. At first, it, it, it's not even something that I fully understand. But then I was like, well, it's true. And the reason it's true is because I know that sometimes I think conflicting things. Like I want, I want and not want something at the same time, right? But I think that what really landed it for me was learning to meditate. Because when you learn to meditate, what you do is you can't really stop your thoughts. Everyone is like, you should stop your thoughts. And I'm like, no one can stop. Thoughts think. That's what they do. But you start to make a distinction between a thought and your ability to like pick it out and start and like dwell on it or just letting it pass so that you can take another breath. And so you start making like a nano separation between you and your thought. And that's how you start actually seeing that your thought and you are not the same. Mm. Well, the short answer to your question is I learned to meditate. Mm. Is there a specific meditation practice you follow today? So many people ask me about my meditation practice and, and so many people worry that they're doing it wrong. Here's what I do. I pick a quiet spot, usually in the morning. I sit, I breathe, and I try to focus on my breath. And I do that for four minutes. That's it. So I don't chant. I don't feel like it has to be 20 minutes or an hour I don't think it's something complicated. I don't think I'm doing very much. I'm just basically trying to focus on my breath. By the way, there is an, I don't know if you've heard of an app called Calm. I don't work for them or represent them, but I adore them. I think that app is life-changing. And inside that app, there is a meditation course, a beginner's course by a guy called Jeff Warren. And it's 30 days, a 10-minute meditation a day, which he talks you through. And it is one of the best things that has ever happened to me. It is fantastic. I recommend it so much. And every day is a different meditation. So at the end, you almost have a menu of how you want to meditate. But fundamentally, it is you can't do it wrong. The benefits are not felt while you meditate. And all I'm asking you to do is sit and focus on your breath or focus on what he calls home base, which could be your breath or could be something else. It could be a spot behind your neck or whatever. And you just breathe. And after two minutes or four minutes, you're done. And it's fantastic. But that meditation in that app is really, truly a, like a gift. It's wonderful. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. That's great. I've got one more uh, topic, I guess, to broach here before we wrap this up. And I want to have you go to page 29, if you could, and read, Is Optimism Delusional? Mm-hmm. I have a lot to say about that. I'll, I'll read this. Okay. Is optimism delusional? This question assumes that pessimists see things as they are. This puts me in a place where I would have to accept detaching myself from reality in order to be happy, where I have to decline seeing things clearly if, I, if what I want is to feel good. How can I possibly be happy if I believe happiness is a bargain I would never want to strike? I reject any perspective that traps me into having to choose not to be happy or that makes me believe that happiness implies the loss of something I can't live without. Instead, I can be happy without needing to deceive myself, and so can you. Hmm. 
you said you have a lot to unpack on that one. I definitely want to give you a few minutes to I, go well, for it. I think that there's a, so if I tell someone I don't feel great today and they're like, what? Be happy. Don't feel bad. Don't feel sad. Feel amazing. I actually think that's really invasive. So I don't think optimism is something that you can force on another person. And I don't Mm -hmm. think optimism is something that I feel all the time. I think that sometimes it's okay to not be optimistic. And I think that it's okay to not force someone to like push someone into being happy all the time. But I also think that looking at the at things in the best possible light. Like if I have a choice to see something in a way that makes me happy or in a way that doesn't, I would rather look at it in a way that makes me happy, but that doesn't necessarily imply that I'm not being realistic. Right. And does just like simple gratitude play a part in, in you know, being more optimistic? I actually think gratitude is one of the most important things that we can do for ourselves. I know that it's become kind of a fluffy word, like, oh, a gratitude practice. But I find it so incredibly powerful because basically what gratitude does is it shifts my perspective from what I don't have to what I do have. So the pandemic, I'm like, oh my God, I'm on lockdown. I haven't seen people. My entire relationship landscape has changed. I'm afraid. I haven't seen my family, right? And that's that's real. All of those things are real. But if I try to focus on what I'm grateful for, I'm like, I have a roof over my head. I have a job. I have friends, I have technology that I can communicate through. And I start making a list of things that I'm grateful for. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so lucky. And focusing on the things that I have and focusing on the things that are mine, rather than focusing on the things that I don't have, I think is is life-changing. People like you have an innate understanding of how to live that I think goes beyond what the cynical people have, for sure. Yeah. Thank you for that. I I also think that there's a lot to be said for making space for when you don't feel like a gratitude practice. Like, you know, sometimes you're angry or sometimes you're full of grief and sometimes you're sad or sometimes you're depressed. And I think all of those things are necessary and real and you can't knock someone out of those things. And you can't, you know, whenever I'm sad and someone says, you know, buck up or suck it up, or, you know, you can be happy. So I feel, I feel like sadness and depression are, I've been through them and I think they're real and deserve their space. But I also think that we can do a lot for ourselves with our perspective. So basically both of those things are true. Indeed. That was awesome. Dushka, this has been so fantastic. I'm so grateful to have you here. The company that I work with is one of the largest recruiters of college students in America. We recruit literally tens of thousands of young people every year for a direct sales job. We teach them a lot about sales, but a lot more about life and business in general. So much of the audience that would be listening uh, are in their 20s. You have a great essay. It's on page 27. It's called Torment and Butterflies. Yes, I know. I know. Have, it's, it's written to a friend in her 20s. Yeah. And if you could just go down to the fourth line where it starts the italics, what you'd want to say to people in their 20s, I would love to have you read that part. Yes. I'm actually going to start from the beginning because I think it's important context. It's just a few more lines. Sure. Torment and butterflies. I'm talking to a friend and she's in her late 20s and she, you know, she worries. She worries about so many things. I know exactly how she feels. And I do mean exactly. Because I was 20 just a few weeks ago, and because in most ways, I'm in my 20s now. I lean back in my chair, and I'm listening, but I'm also thinking about all the things I want to say. What I want to say is, oh my God, oh my God, just look at you. You have everything you need. You are beautiful in ways you won't understand for decades. You are in a hurry, but you have so much time. You feel like you will have everything figured out a few years from now, but all you're doing is rushing towards the time you realize that moment never comes. And you're angst. Oh, you're angst. I know you want to get rid of it, and you should, but it's also life force. Use it. I was not like you when I was in my 20s. You are so together. You see so much more than I ever did. You're going to be okay. And I don't mean everything is going to be okay. I mean you. I know this because I see it right in front of me, plain as day. That's what I want to say, but I don't bother. Because she's just sitting there, precious, tangled, all torment and butterflies. And I already know she will not believe me. It's a great message to young people anywhere to be able to hear and to think about. There's so many good little nuggets in there that I really loved. Thank you. You know, you said right now that you recruit a lot of people. And I I feel like you and I should probably talk maybe offline about getting them my book. If we agree on a date, 
I can make all the books available for free on Kindle on the the e-readers for free for a day for 24 hours so that everyone who works for your company can get them because I would love to make them available to them. And I don't think that they, anyone should have to pay to read what I write. That is so generous. And that's so amazing. And, and we would love to take you up on that. I, as you know, I've already purchased many dozens of your books and about to purchase many dozens more right now from a, we will continue purchasing many dozens, but the idea of being able to get this to anybody that wants to get the Kindle version, that's really awesome. Dushka. We should talk about arranging for that because that way they can have access to them and not have to pay for them. Yeah. That's awesome. I love that. That'd be really great. I would like to end this by having you read one more essay. Yeah. And this will be uh, the last part, I promise. Oh, it's my pleasure. Pa- page 158. What skills make me a better human? 158. Yes. What skills make me a better human? What skills make me a better human? Self-love, which allows me to see things as they are rather than defensively. Selflessness to always consider the thoughts or feelings of others rather than being under the illusion that everything revolves around me. Generosity, to give, forgive, and assume the best intentions in others. Gratitude, to appreciate what I have rather than only have eyes for what I don't. Non-judgment, to accept and understand both myself and other people. Accountability, because it's the antidote to blame. Compassion, which is the ability to put myself in other person's shoes. Courage, to face fear and be willing to make the right choice for myself even if I risk disappointing others. Mm. And writing, right, Dushka? Right? Should everyone be writing? Yes. I actually posted three skills that are important to learn for professional reasons. And I think that they are writing, how to be better presenters, and how to think visually. Yeah. I love that post. It was a few days ago. I shared that. And it's a great one for sure. And I think that uh, if everybody could spend a little bit of time writing it just clarifies their thoughts it helps them realize you know who who they are and who they want to be and so many lessons of life come to light when we write we internalize the concepts a whole lot more when we write as well and i think it's a it's a great skill for everybody to have have you ever read a book called draw to win draw to win or a book called the back of the napkin i have not so those two books are written by a guy called dan room and he writes about thinking visually. What he says about drawing is exactly what you just said about writing. What he says is that we were visual before we had language. So in your brain, in your primal brain, before you learned how to use words, you knew how to think visually, how to, how to draw and how to think visually. And basically, before you write anything, if you draw it, your thoughts will be a lot clearer. And my three professional skills are writing, how to be a better presenter, and how to think visually because of those books. Mm. Check them out. Yeah, that's awesome. That is awesome. Dushka, in the book here, you, you also have an essay called The Most Essential Human Need, where you say, setting aside the most obvious things such as food and water and being safe, the most essential human needs are purpose or meaning, connection, validation, being seen, understood, not from ego, but from identity, belonging, and the sense that you are leaving something behind or legacy. Mm-hmm. Dushka, I, I don't think there's anyone I know who is leaving a greater legacy behind than you are through your writing. I mean, you've got these 11 books. They're full of incredible essays that anyone can read within a few minutes and chew on and ponder and share with people. You're sharing constantly every day through your social media. Uh, You're doing this all not because you want to gain anything from it, but because you want to give as much value as possible to the world. And this legacy that you're leaving is going to live on forever. And it's really, really inspirational to me. I'm really inspired by what you do. And I hope our audience has been inspired by you as well today. And I just want to say I'm really grateful for having you here on the podcast today. Thank you so much. It's not easy to leave me speechless, but you just have. (laughs) So thank you for that. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you. Look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, Dan. Bye. 
Dushka Zapata, everyone. That was so amazing. I want to shout out and say thank you to Christopher Lockhead for first introducing me to Dushka. Dushka was a guest on Christopher Lockhead's podcast, and I just started following Dushka on social media, would comment on some of her posts and occasionally sent her some messages about what I like best. Found out that she lives in San Francisco, which is not too far from me. And so we actually met once about a year and a half ago, briefly, and have just been corresponding on occasion here. And I'm very grateful that uh, Christopher Lockhead, Christopher Lockhead told Dushka that I was somebody that would be you know, good to spend time with and get to know and kind of built up, uh, gave me some credibility there. So thank you, Chris, for the introduction. Dushka's book that we unpacked today is called Feelings Are Fickle and Other Things I Wish Someone Had Told Me. Of course, she has many other books that you can check out. I love the idea of just wanting to suffer less and where that comes from. It comes from being compassionate, putting yourself in other people's shoes. It comes from loving yourself, including all of the warts and all the insecurities that we have. You know, we're all perfect as we are, as we are continuing to evolve. Suffering less also comes from discipline, right? That that's not something that makes us suffer more, but less. I thought that was really compelling. Awareness is the beginning of all change, Dushka shared. And are we taking time to gain awareness? Time alone, introspection, meditation is a part of that. Writing is a part of that and clarifying our thoughts and receiving feedback from others is a big part of that and learning to do that in a way that treats that as a gift and not as something to take personally. The meaning of life is connection and the value of every person that we meet and going through every day and realizing the most important person in the world is that person that's in front of us right in the moment, taking a genuine interest in other people, developing that sense of wonder and curiosity about others. I would encourage you to follow Dushka on whatever social media you hang out on. She posts pretty much daily essays such as the ones that uh, she has shared here today. Check out Dan Rome, R-O-A-M, and his books on drawing. And Dushka is going to make all of her books available for free on Kindle on Wednesday, March 17th. That is precisely one month after the date this episode will release. And so mark your calendar. You can go on Amazon on that day, Wednesday, March 17th, and you can get the Kindle version of any and all of Dusha's books for free. Of course, I also encourage you to purchase the actual books because they're great to have and make for awesome, awesome lessons you can share with people on your team and things that you can discuss. I hope you enjoyed this one today, everyone. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's episode, please share it with others and consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player. Subscribing to the podcast is free and ensures that future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. And to support our podcast sponsors, visit changinglivespodcast.com slash deals. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives. 